Let's pray. Lord, you know that I know that I may be the last person that should be preaching this message today. I have no right. I have no standing. The Lord, as the great prophet Daniel said, we, we don't ask for you to come and do your mighty work because of any merit of ours, but because of your great faithfulness. And if you choose to do something among us this morning, Lord, we promise we won't touch the glory. It all belongs to you. Amen. Some of you are aware that uh, something that happened at Asbury College then, called in 1970, uh, and now Asbury University, that there's, um, there's an awakening going on there. Started about a month ago in Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, and that has spread to um, a lot of universities and um, some that have been Christian in the past but now are essentially completely secular and yet amazing things starting to happen and even many churches seem to be starting to experience an awakening from the Lord. And then uh, coincidental timing, if you haven't seen it, go see the movie The Jesus Revolution. It's, um, it's a story of what some scholars believe was the greatest awakening in American history. Um, hippies got saved. Hey, <laughs> a few of you in your 80s uh, were there. Um, oh my, uh, <laughs> I, I hear that witness. Hey, I get, I get to preach this morning, okay? Um, so, uh, but it, it is an amazing, authentic, incredible expression of what God did in the past. And many are now wondering, could the spark that happened at Asbury be happening again? We don't know yet. But what's obvious to most is a widespread sense that our country is in trouble. Political divisions, drug abuse, surging crime, economic crises, an epidemic of mental illness, homelessness, international tensions, and even the N-word. Yeah, no, that nuclear conflict word on the airwaves every day. And in the midst of all this, surveys show that regardless of one's political perspective, Confidence in our government's ability to deal with our country's problems is at an all-time low. Almost everybody has lost confidence that there's an answer in Washington. Everybody. But even 
With all of these crises going on as believers, we have to face something that's of greater concern, much greater concern. The issue of many things that are happening in the church. And here's where things get really sobering. In many ways, the church is in critical condition. Just look around. Rapidly declining worship attendance and engagement. Widespread evidence of a disconnect between what Christians believe and the way they actually live their lives. All you have to do is look around to see that the power and the purity that characterized the early church and most of the church through history, that power and purity seems to be all but lacking in much of the American church. Now, if these assessments of our country and the church are accurate, I don't, uh, you know I, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but if this is accurate, it leads to a reasonable prediction. You ready? Here's your first blanks. Yep. You come to Sunday school, new perspective on Sunday school, right? I'm preaching, so you're at Sunday school, time to get out your notes. Um, A prediction, you ready? If if the church in America doesn't experience true revival soon, there's no hope for America. Without a true transforming spiritual awakening, our nation will take the same course that every other powerful nation in history has taken. A crumbling of its once dominant status while others look on in pity as it collapses and the next great world power emerges. By the way, all you have to do is look around and you can give names to those potential new world powers. So I'm gonna begin this message by asking a question. It's the title of the message. Do we really want revival? Now I ask this seemingly obvious question because we tend to be so flippant about saying that we want revival to happen. But I wanna point something out. When Christians use the term revival, we usually mean something that's completely detached from what scripture teaches about it. What we usually mean by revival is that we're willing to allow the Lord to make us a little better that we're ready for the Lord to tweak a few of our trivial shortcomings. Because after all, look at everybody else. They're so much worse. So when scripture talks about revival, it means the kind of moving of God that results in deep repentance where we place our whole life in God's hands, that means whole life. That doesn't mean that other part of your life right now that doesn't have anything to do with Sunday or Jesus or God or Bible. It means our whole life and it means that it changes everything. When the word talks about revival, it doesn't just mean an unusually emotional and wonderful church service that leaves us inspired, and slightly improved, you know what it means? It means a spiritual awakening that's felt for generations that aren't even born yet. Now, a huge amount of scripture deals with with, uh, revival. In my studies of the Old Testament, I don't know if you know, but about 30 years ago, what a concept, halfway into my Christian life, I, I discovered the Old Testament. It's part of the Bible. 
Do you know there's 17 great national awakenings in the Old Testament? They are incredible to read through. But amazingly enough, despite the massiveness of the Old Testament and the massiveness of the scripture, the whole scripture on revival, I believe you can really boil all of this scripture down to two, two keys to revival. Ready, here's the first one, here's your blanks. The first key to revival, understanding what prevents revival. Now many of us have been, have been confused about what needs to happen for an awakening to sweep across this country. We've focused on how evil our culture is becoming. We've believed that the forces of darkness have prevented, the forces of darkness have prevented us from seeing spiritual renewal. After all, think about it. The powers of evil that oppose us in government, entertainment, media, politics, and education are staggering. There are big enemies out there. Frankly, it seems that the enemy arrayed against the church is just too great for us to be very hopeful about revival coming. But the Bible doesn't teach that the powers of darkness can prevent revival. Did you know that? In fact, you ready? Here's a biblical precept. Here's your next blanks. The revival is not about the strength of the enemy. Wow. This truth is shown in a well-known Old Testament story. You may be familiar. Israel was in the wilderness. They'd left Egypt. They're in the wilderness. And they came to the borders of the promised land that Moses sends out 12 spies. Two of them come back, Joshua and Caleb say, yeah. And the 10 of them say, oh man, yeah, it's gorgeous. But holy cow, look at those giants. That New Spade International version, right? Okay, so look at this. Numbers 13, look at this story. Look what's happening. Then it'll be on the screen. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. Look what they said. They're too strong. They're too strong. The giants are too big. The enemy is too powerful. They were saying we can't take the promised land because the enemy is just too powerful. But the next chapter corrects this misunderstanding. If you've never seen this verse, it is a kingpin transition verse in all of the word of God. In chapter 14, look at what happens here in verse seven and eight. Then they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron, saying the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And you ready? If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us. You see, this passage tells us something incredibly important about, you ready? About us. God's people tend to explain our failures because of the enemies that stand against us. Right? Oh, I'm just, I'm under attack. Why do I live in rebellion against God? Because the enemy, I'm under attack from the enemy. No, you, no, you may be, but that's not why. <laughs> we love to put all this stuff over on, just make the list. 
whichever associations you want to be against and all that kind of stuff, whichever party you want to join and look and point fingers because you know what? It doesn't matter what news channel you look on. You know what the message is? Forget, take the content out. We're really amazing. We have the answer. They're evil. And if we don't take them out, this nation's in trouble. And you just decide which one you're going to watch. But that's the message. It's a, you know what? The news is messianic today. I don't trust any of them because they don't understand this concept. See, they're too powerful for us. God's people tend to explain our failures because of the enemies that stand against us. So let me explain what I mean. The Israelites told God that the giants were what kept them from victory. Listen, church. This explanation for failure was that God hadn't removed the forces that occupied the land. God, get rid of the giants and then we'll take the land. Guess whose fault it was that they weren't taking the land? God's fault and the giants' fault. God not removing the giants. That's why they couldn't take the land. But Numbers 14 gives us two precepts that have profound implications for revival. Ready, number one, here's your blank. The answer to taking our community and our nation for the kingdom isn't the removal of the enemy. By the way, God has a plan to save the enemy. Here. (laughs) And precept number two, the answer is, if God, right out of 14.8, if God is pleased with his people, he will give us the land. Listen, church, if God is pleased with his people, he will give us a land. Think about this. God wanted to give the land to his people while it was still occupied by the enemy. God was waiting for one thing, for his people to live lives that were pleasing to him. God wasn't waiting for the giants to be removed. He was waiting for his people to be holy. Oh, my What a reversal of most revival preaching. See, we find the same precept 40 years later after Israel's finally gone into the promised land at Jericho, they had their first major victory. And if you have your uh, real Bible, open it up to Joshua chapter uh, six. It's about 20% into your Bible. Joshua, Joshua chapter six, look at verse 20. Here they are at Jericho, first big, huge battle. And here's the great victory day, ready? So the people shouted, And the priests drew trumpets, blew trumpets, and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. So nothing but trumpets and shouting, Jericho collapses, big victory. And now let's look just a few days later at their next battle at Ai. I kind of think of it as the Winkleman of Palestine. Okay, you ever been to Winkleman? You know, on the way through, before the you know, Salt River Canyon? Yeah, Winkleman. Okay, think of Ai as Winkleman. Or the greatest named city, town, borough in Arizona. Why? Like, why is it here? Okay, ready? Notice, look with me at chapter seven, verse two. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, 
which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, this is great, no big deal, look at this. Do not let all the people go up, only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not take all the people or make the t- people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up, but they fled from Winkleman. They fled from Ai. What? And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gates as far as Shabaram, and they struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now I want you to notice the contrast between the two battles. (laughs) Jericho was one of the most highly fortified cities in the world, according to historians and archeologists, and boom, it's gone. Ai, little village, they're running from it. Notice something. Clearly the power of the enemy doesn't explain the defeat. Let that soak in. Jericho's power was much greater than Ai's and yet the Israelites were victorious over Jericho but they were routed by Ai. So if the power of the enemy didn't explain the defeat, what did? It's really simple. At the first battle, they were walking in obedience to God. But when they went up against Ai, there was sin in the camp of God's people. To see this, we need to know what God had commanded them not to do before Jericho. They went in, God said, don't touch the spoils. Gold, the silver, all that kind of stuff, don't touch it. It's mine. It's not yours. It's mine. Don't touch the spoils of battle that'll help you remember it wasn't your victory, it was mine. You don't get spoils of war because you didn't win the battle. I made the walls come crumbling down, right? And that, so don't touch the spoil. Really straightforward, don't touch the spoil. Look at verse one of chapter seven, right after Jericho. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. And now look at the clear explanation for the defeat at Ai. Verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up, why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, and they have even taken some of the things under the ban, which they have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Isn't that remarkable? Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs and run before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Verse 13, rise up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate ourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban, listen church, there are things under the ban in your midst. Listen, American church, there are things under the ban in your midst. If the surveys are right, four in 10 Christian men 
are using pornography every single week. There are things under the ban in your midst. So, you know why we don't need a new Bible? Because the new age is just the old age all over again. We don't need a new Bible. Content and names change, everything else is the same. Listen, God's people, to what he is saying. This is amazing. See, the power of the enemy had nothing to do with the AI defeat. It had nothing to do with the Jericho victory. Ready? Here we go. Key concept number one flows right out of this. The strength of the enemy is never a problem for God. Surprise! What? Oh, yeah. They're not the problem. Never is the enemy the problem for God. See, God isn't impressed with the forces of darkness. God is never intimidated by the enemy. Think of this. The problem isn't that the darkness is dark. That's the definition. Ready? The problem isn't that the world is living in sin. Surprise! When did we ever think Hollywood was going to be on Jesus' side? They're doing the only thing they know to do. You know what the problem is? The light has been tinkering with darkness. The problem is those with the light have been living in the gray zone. It's not their fault. See, the real problem is this. There's sin in the camp. And folks, not only will God not take America through us, he won't take Winkleman through us if there's sin in the camp. Key concept number two, here it is. What prevented victory was not the sin of the enemy, oof, but the sin of God's people. Let that soak in for a minute. Then look again at the connection with these verses from chapter seven. Look at this. I think it'll be on the screen from verse 11. Israel has sinned. Verse 12, therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Verse 13, listen church, you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. So listen to the biblical precept again. If God is pleased with his people, he will give us the land. Big giants, too numerous to count giants, doesn't matter what the giants, if God is pleased with his people, he will give us the land. And this means that we've been mistaken about what prevents revival. Ready? It's key concept number three. Here's your blank. The only thing that has ever prevented revival is when God is displeased with his people. It's not the world's fault, folks. It's ours. Don't miss this. The world can't prevent revival. Governments can't prevent revival. The courts can't prevent revival. Hollywood, politicians, news outlets, universities, cultural elites, folks, and evil society cannot prevent revival. So are you ready? It's the great paradox, write it in. If you don't write anything else in this morning, write this one in. Here it is, only the church living in compromise. Only the church living in compromise can prevent revival. Do you realize what this means? We believe that our country is tanking because of the enemy. 
We believe that the power of evil forces in our land is why we're where we are. Well, this scripture is a big wake-up call, isn't it? Listen to me. The blood of Jesus Christ has never lost its power. There's enough blood and power in the blood to save every last person in this land. It's never lost its power. So the only thing that's preventing God from sweeping across this nation with his redemptive power is that the compromising, lukewarm church is weakened by our sin. That's why America hasn't seen revival in our day. You ready for the biblical explanation for our country's mess? And I think all sides think we're in a mess. You ready for it? Here it is. What's wrong with America is what's wrong with the church. Because remember, if God is pleased with his people, he will give us the land. So the first key to revival is understanding what prevents revival. And now let's look at the second key to revival. Ready? Here it is. Here's your blanks. Understanding who revival must begin with. And I hate this part of the message. I tried to delete this and delete it. Lord, it's better when I preach shorter. Let's just do the one point. That's bad enough. It's not their fault. It's mine. Are you kidding? What a lousy message. Ready? When you ask Christians what the key to revival is, most of us are biblically insightful enough to say, that's easy, one word, repentance, right? Repentance is the key to revival. Um, But here's what we mean by that usually. What we mean is all those sinners out there need to repent. But listen carefully. This isn't what Scripture teaches To illustrate this, I'd like to highlight, this is just one example of it, but it's a powerful one. From the attributes of Daniel's life, that amazing prophet, Daniel 1.8, look at this text, but Daniel made up his mind. Daniel made up his mind he would not defile himself. You ready for the first attribute? Write it in. Daniel determined, Daniel determined that no matter what, he would always stay true to God. It was settled. It was done. Always. Doesn't matter. Don't care what the price is. He determined. It was done. And now let's look at the event that Daniel's most famous for. Look at this from verse, uh, chapter 6. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Now notice something. As far as we know, Daniel was the only one who refused to stop praying to God the only one that went to the lion's den. But historians tell us that there were probably somewhere between one and two million Jews in Babylon at the time. So here's the obvious question. Where were all the other praying Jews that were supposed to go into the lion's den with Daniel? Think about this. There should have been so many praying people that the lions could never have eaten them all in all of their lifetime. They should have had to make an appointment for the lion's den. You might remember from way back ago, I think I preached it here, I know I preached it at Crossroads, but on the the three Hebrew children went into the fire, and this is how how I envision it. I envision it, okay, they they show up and there's the soldiers by the lion's den, and, and, and here they say, sorry, we're all booked today. Your reservation for the lions is next Thursday. Be here promptly at nine, please. 
Here's your confirmation number. Uh, but no, that's not what happened with Daniel. Guess what? The crowd wimped out. The church was more worried about their own material well-being, like Barna tells us is the number one thing the church cares about. The church was more worried about their really cool paneled houses in Babylon. But not Daniel, you ready? But this gives us a fact. Attribute number two of Daniel, Daniel was willing to walk the narrow way all alone if he had to. I don't know about you, I wish my mom had given me a different name. That name convicts me. No matter what, I'm with God. Any cost. And all alone, by now we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have already died. Daniel lived into his 80s. Because otherwise there would have been four people in the lion's den, right? But five, including Jesus, right? The one true Savior always. But notice, don't notice this. We, we've now established that Daniel was willing to obey God and walk in holiness, even if it was the only one in the nation who did. And because of this, his incredible righteousness, chapter 9 is one of the most surprising scriptures in all of the biblical text. It makes no sense at all. You ready? Look at verse 9. Uh, verse three from chapter nine. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him in prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. You know what those are signs? Those are ancient signs of Daniel's on his face repenting. What? Let me tell you what verse three should say. Now, if you're new here, you need to understand. Lots of times, I put up a verse that is what the Bible should say, okay? Now, I'm not rewriting scripture, okay? So don't storm out. I'm just telling you what verse three should say if God listened to me. You ready? Verse three, here it should be. So Daniel gave sackcloth and ashes to all the prayerless, sinful, idolatrous Jews and told them that they needed to repent. God help us. Daniel was the one who repented. Instead of pointing a finger at the wicked and saying, you have sinned, he included himself and he said, we have sinned. So look at his astonishing prayer. Daniel 9 has changed my life. Look what happens here. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. As it is this day, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought out your people from the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. Listen to the phrases again. We have sinned, and remember who's praying this, determined he would always follow God even if he was all alone, and he did. 
He's saying, we have sinned, we have not listened. Open shame belongs to us, we have rebelled, we have not obeyed. We have been wicked. So what's up with this? Why was Daniel repenting when he had walked in holiness? This passage teaches an amazing concept. You ready for the highest form of holiness? This isn't your blank yet. It's when God's people are so humble and their hearts are so broken and their spirits are so contrite that they're willing to take the responsibility for the corporate sin of their family and church and city and nation. And this gives us a key concept, write it in. Those who are truly holy are willing to shame, to share, excuse me, share the corporate shame of their people even when they themselves have remained blameless. True holiness. You see, the other kind of looking pure, there's a word for it in the New Testament. It's called Phariseeism. And remember the two brothers? The, uh, you know, swine-slopping, prostitute-thinking, you know, guy came back. Guess what? At the end of the story, who's in fellowship with the Father? Him. And who's out of fellowship with the Father? The one who said, Father, I've always done everything you told me to. And the Father doesn't say, oh, no, you didn't. Remember that time when you were six? The God, his righteousness kept him from God. So look at this. This is an amazing concept. And you might be wondering, where does this theology come from? I've never heard this before. How can I say this? And you ready? Because it's exactly what Jesus did. Listen to God the Father talking about his son Jesus. Ready from Isaiah 53? I, the Father speaking, I will allot him, Jesus, I will allot him a portion with the great. You ready for why Jesus was great in the Father's eyes? Because he was numbered with the transgressors. Notice what the word teaches. Jesus was great in God's eyes, not just because he was holy. He was great in God's eyes because he was willing to take responsibilities for others' wickedness as well. He was great, you ready? He was great because he was willing to bear the burden for other people, for other people's sin. In fact, he didn't only die for our sins, he descended. Remember the creed? He descended into Sheol, into Hades for our sin. So amazing to think about what Jesus did when a person comes, uh, it's just, this, is, this is what a truly holy person does. You ready? Here's your blank. The highest form of holiness. Jesus and Daniel were willing to be numbered with the sinners, even though they hadn't joined in their wicked ways. I tell you, that's not what most gospel preaching churches are preaching today. Most of them have joined with all the other placard carrying people saying what's wrong with America is all those evil people out there. They don't look, we don't look anything like Jesus or Daniel. Help us, Lord. So, with this, we see that a truly holy person looks like this. Rather than being impressed with their own holiness, you know what they do? Their hearts are broken for the sins of their people. And when they think about the sins of their community and their nation, they fall before God. And in humility, you know what they do? They take on the shame for their people and they say, oh God, have mercy on us for we are 
sinners. When a person comes to this level of holiness, you know what they stop doing? They stop pointing fingers at anyone else. They're no longer impressed with what they've done for God. And in fact, they think, when they think about the wicked people around them, rather than condemning them, you know what happens? Their heart is just full of grief for them because they love them like Jesus loves them. And they know they're deceived and they know the pain that they're in. And they spend all of their time saying, oh God, how can you help me to help save them from what they're doing to themselves? And never again do they say, what's wrong with this country is all those people out there. So now with this perspective, are you ready to, tra to travail for the wicked? Are you ready to weep for the lost? Are you ready to mourn for sinners? And I'd like us to stop and think about what it's gonna take for revival to come to our church and to our city and to this nation. Most Christians know that repentance is the key to revival, but here's the problem. I think this is your last blank, here you go. Many of us have been mistaken about who needs to repent for revival to come. Most of us in the church are waiting for the other people to repent. Notice this, most Christians believe that those wicked transgressors who need, need to pay the price for revival, but we folks, we have been wrong. Here's what the scripture teaches to the church. Christ's atoning sacrifice is free. Forgiveness is free. Redemption is free. Salvation is free. But listen, church, revival is costly. So this morning, I'd like to end with the question that we started with. Now, do we really want revival? Now that we know what the word teaches about the cost of revival, do we really want it? Now that we know that it's God's people who must repent for revival to come, do we really want it? Now that we know that it's the church that has to pay the price for revival, do we really want revival? You see, revival comes when God's people are so desperate for a spiritual awakening that they don't just take responsibility for their own sins, but they also for the sins of those around them. And this means a willingness to take on the shame for the sins of our family, our friends, our church, our community, and our nation. We do that. Do you know when revival will come to America? I want you to listen very carefully. Revival will come to America when the cries of repentance from God's people are louder than the outcry of the sins of the nation. I want you to think about that again. Revival will come to America when the cries of repentance from God's people are louder than the outcry of the sins of the nation. And let me tell you how great the sound and the shouting and the screaming of the sin of America is now before the throne of God. It's time for us to be louder 
And what this means is revival won't come to America until it comes first to the church. Adrian and worship team, come on up. So here's the call. If we really want revival, if we really want revival, God is calling us to be like Daniel, not impressed with our own holiness. And like Jesus, God is calling us to be numbered with the sinners. Listen, the kind of revival that many people in the church have been asking for is revival without a price. We've thought that revival will come when all those wicked people out there repent. Unfortunately, we've been waiting, listen church, we've been waiting for the wrong people to fill our altars. We've been waiting for revival to begin with someone else. But listen to what the word has taught us this morning. Revival doesn't come when the wicked repent. Revival comes when the righteous repent. When people like Jesus take on the shame and the sin. I suspect that many of us have been praying for revival. And now I believe that the Lord is giving us the opportunity to show him that we actually, we actually, we actually mean it. You see, when many of us in the church pray for revival, we're, we're usually talking about having an unusually inspirational church service. But rarely do we mean that we want God to come with his scorching fire to purify us, to purify me. When we pray for revival, what we usually want is for God to come change others. We want the Holy Spirit to come and convict others. We want God to come and purify other people. That's what we mean by revival. But if we actually want the kind of awakening that spills out into the streets and neighborhoods, the kind that saves our neighborhood, our community, our city, and that can save our nation, the kind of awakening that will change everything for generations to come, then what God is looking for is who will, someone who will stop looking at everyone else's sin, everyone else's sin, and fall before him with true repentance for my sin. Stand with me, church. I've intentionally left time for us to linger because maybe we'll allow God to do something great here now. Here's the call. There would be no greater way for God to show us how serious we are about revival than for this service to end with a host of God's people bowing at his altar and shedding tears of humility and repenting of our sins and repenting for the sins of this church and, and weeping for the sins of this nation and crying out for the fire of the Holy Spirit to fall in this place and asking God to come in mighty power to cleanse our hearts to cleanse our hearts like they've never been cleansed before. So let me ask you a question. Who, like Daniel, will be willing to say, if I have to stand all alone, I'm willing to pay the price for revival to begin with me. Me, Lord, 
not all those people out there, not the people I'm mad at, not all the obvious sins I've picked out in other people's lives, but Lord, I'll pay the price for it to begin with me. If the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, if you're desperate to see Jesus revive the church, if you want more than anything else in the world for God to use a purified church to save this nation, then come as we sing. Just come.